Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 146 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a dashing young actor who has had a rabid following in America for the better part of the last decade, but who has found new measures of respect this spring for his haunting work in the massively acclaimed HBO limited series Big Little Lies, Alexander Skarsgård. The 40-year-old Swede first burst onto the scene in 2008 when HBO unveiled two high-profile projects that showcased his talents. The first was the seven-part miniseries Generation Kill, in which he played an extraordinary U.S. Marine during the early days of the war in Iraq. And the second was the drama series True Blood, in which he played a thousand-year-old vampire named Eric Northman opposite Anna Paquin and Stephen Moyer. Generation Kill won extensive acclaim and received 11 Emmy nominations, while True Blood became HBO's biggest hit since The Sopranos, running for seven seasons until 2014. Over the intervening years, Skarsgård has popped up in a wide array of projects, from Lady Gaga's 2009 music video for the song Paparazzi, to acclaimed indies like Lars von Trier's Melancholia in 2011 and Marielle Heller's The Diary of a Teenage Girl in 2015, to big studio action films like 2012's Battleship and 2016's The Legend of Tarzan. All the while, far more attention has been paid to his looks than his talents, but that all changed with Big Little Lies, which is based on the best-selling novel of the same name by Leanne Moriarty, which in turn was adapted for the screen by David E. Kelly and directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, and in which Skarsgård plays Perry, the successful husband of Nicole Kidman, Celeste, and father of their two children in present-day Monterey, who, on the flick of a dime, alternates between loving family man and explosively abusive spouse. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Skarsgård and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. What it was like growing up as the son of one of Sweden's most venerated actors, Stellan Skarsgård. How Alexander came to be an actor himself at the age of seven, and why he quit the profession soon after attaining child stardom at 13. The bizarre series of events that brought him back to films, specifically in a small part in 2001 Zoolander, and then almost caused him to quit again shortly before he landed Generation Kill. How he and Kidman prepared for, executed, and responded to their incredibly intense scenes of sex and violence in Big Little Lies, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Alex, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, we always just ask a, a straightforward one. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Your answer is obviously a little bit more interesting than most. So let's start there. I was born in Stockholm, Sweden, and I was raised out there. Uh, my father is an actor, so we traveled quite a bit when I was a kid. So yeah. we spent, I remember when I was eight, we spent a couple of months in Texas, in Fredericksburg. So that was my first first time I was out here in, in the States. It was a pretty amazing experience for a little kid because coming from Stockholm and suddenly in Fredericksburg, it's like proper <laughs> cowboy country. So I, I was blown away, and that's where I fell in love with America. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, we, we should say, just for the record, because your father's not just any actor. He's a great actor, Stellan Skarsgård, who I think maybe people in this country first really came to know and appreciate through Breaking the Waves. Is that fair to say? Or yeah, I think it was that one, and then he got... Goodwill Hunting off of Breaking the Waves. Right. That was he had done a couple of smaller things out here, yeah. but that was the one that where he started working out here a lot. And so prior to that, though, when he was internationally known, what kind of a career did he have back in Sweden? And just because this is obviously what you grew up around, I'm wondering what you know what you were observing that maybe contributed to your interest in in pursuing this as well. Well, when I was a kid, he was other than that. Those three, four months we spent in Fredericksburg when he did a, it was called Noon Wine. It was, I think it was like a movie of the week or something yeah. like that with Fred Ward was in it. Other than that, he was, he was primarily a stage actor in Stockholm. So when I was a kid, he did repertoire, which meant that he would rehearse all day and then perform at night. So I spent a lot of time at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm just hanging out. That was kind of my, my, my playground. Yeah. yeah, because he was there 16 hours a day and I wanted to be around my dad, so... He would be up on stage with Ingmar Bergman, and I couldn't care less. It was way more fun to be kind of out and <laughs> to run around in the cafeteria. Or right. my favorite place was the special fat makeup room and, 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 and all the prosthetics and that kind of stuff. Right. So when I was a kid, again, he was 
he worked, he did a couple of Swedish films, but he was primarily a, a theater actor. And he didn't, uh, like you said, he it was uh, Breaking the Ways was his first bigger. He was in Goodwill Hunting. So those are 96 and 97. So by that point, you were already, what, about 20? I was 20, yeah. And when he did Goodwill Hunting, well, that was, he was, you know, in a couple of scenes. That was his, again, he, I, I would definitely say that Breaking the Waves and then Goodwill Hunting was, yeah. those were the two projects that kind of got him a little bit of attention out here. And, you know, after that, he started working a lot internationally. And you started yourself, your first film, when you were just seven back in Sweden. And, I want to ask how that opportunity came about, but even before that, just what sort of a, a feedback you got from your dad generally. Was he somebody that encouraged you to get into this or was he somebody who discouraged, you know, what was his, how did he regard the idea of you going into acting as well? He was very indifferent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's always been uh, very supportive, but he also recognized that it's a very tough job and it's difficult to, to make a living as an actor and even if you are making you know fortunate enough to to be able to support yourself you it's tough you know the hours are long and crazy and you travel a lot it's if you're not passionate about it, if you don't love it love it then it's probably not worth it he was always he just wanted you know I have a lot of siblings and he would always he just wanted us to be happy and and find our own path in life and if we ever wanted to explore going into theater then he was 100 percent behind that if we ever felt like, no, this is not for me, I want to do something completely different, he would, again, be 100% behind that. So how did this happen at, at the age of seven? I'm probably going to blitz the pronunciation, but is it Ake and, the, and his world? or it, Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the same letter as my my surname, Skarsgård. Ah. It's actually that when, when you have that little circle yeah. over the A, it's in Swedish, That's um, it's a different letter and a completely different pronunciation. So it would be O. Oh. So my last name in Swedish would be Skarsgård gotcha. and not Skarsgård. So Åke is the, the title of the movie. It's Åke, Åkansvärd, which means Åke in his world. And it was um, an incredible Swedish actor who then became a director, Alain Edvall. He made that film, and he was just a friend of my dad's. And uh, they were over uh, drinking wine at our place, like they did most nights of the week, <laughs> and hanging out, and he was about you know casting his film and I was running around playing I was seven at the time and I guess he just thought like hey what about your kids tell him maybe he <laughs> wants to do it and dad said well you have to ask him like and and Alan asked me and I said sure I'll do your film so that's how it all began and was it an enjoyable experience I mean or in that situation how big was your part was it a was it the the, the part I was meant to play Orca. yeah mm-hmm. And I'll never forget this phone call. So I was going to play Orca, and Orca in the film is a very, from a very affluent neighborhood. He's a very privileged kid, and he has a his best friend is Kalle Nub. He is uh, emaciated. His father drinks. He's very you know from a very poor neighborhood of Stockholm, and he ends up dying in the film. And I was initially cast as Orca, but when I was a kid, I was incredibly skinny, and very pale, <laughs> and. Alan realized that I would be better for the friend because it looked like I was dying. <laughs> so, but he was so respectful. Again, like this, I was seven years old, and he could have done anything he wanted. He was, you know, but I remember him calling me and asking me. Uh, he's like, Alex. So I've been thinking a lot about our film, and, and I just feel like maybe you're, you'd be better for you to play Kalanob. I think you'd be, you know, perfect for that part. How do you feel about that? I had I didn't even read the script. I had no idea. So I was just, sure, that sounds great. <laughs> but to this day, I really respect that because yeah. again, he could have just gone ahead and changed everything. But it was very respectful of him. Yeah. And, uh, so I ended up playing Kalanub, and and you enjoyed uh, it. It was uh, I. I had a great time on it. Again, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't want to be an actor. I, it was just something that you know I ended up being on set and doing it and. People were super friendly. You got to eat as many Cinnabons as you wanted. <laughs> it was like craft service was amazing. Right. So at the time of my life, I, I really loved it. So I, I believe that that started occasional acting for, for you, right? But the big thing that seems to have happened was when you're 13, 1989, you're, you're now the lead of a Swedish TV movie that really clicked, The Dog That Smiled, and... How did that one come about? And then what's really interesting to me from having read a bit about it is that 
the way you reacted to its success. It seems like that was a major turning point for, for in your life at that point. Yeah. I don't want this to sound more dramatic than it was. And sometimes in, in interviews, it makes it sound like this is like dramatic event in my life. And it really wasn't. It I wasn't a child actor in the sense of child actors here in Hollywood. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a headshot. I didn't. It wasn't my dream to be an actor. It was after Orkonsvad, I worked occasionally for the over the course of like six years. You know, some director might have seen that movie and called me the next spring. I was like, oh, can you be in my movie? Or do you want to do an episode of this crime series? And, right. you know, so I, I did little, little things here and there. And then Hunas Lug, I got that when I was 13. And it was, uh, like I said, a, it was for Swedish television. Again, I had a great time on it. I loved it. Everyone was super nice. I still got free Cinnabons. <laughs> it might sound odd having a father who's an actor, but even then, I was 13, I didn't really consider this as a, a profession. I just felt like I was playing. I was having a good time, but I was focused on doing something more uh, academic, or, you know? I heard at one point architect was the goal. Is that? Yeah, maybe not when I was 13, yeah. but when I was a bit older, yeah. I was interested in architecture. Yeah. But, but it got some attention that film and and i got some attention and it made me very um i don't want to say paranoid it's but but a bit uncomfortable and when you say attention what do you mean it was like so it was it was widely seen yeah and then what did that that you're talking about just adults kids people in the general public that were doing what now it was mostly um teenage girls <laughs> and it, it made me uh incredibly uncomfortable because I hated teenage girls. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. But I felt like I wanted to... Being 13, I think it's a weird age for any kid. And to be in the spotlight when you're 13 is very weird. And I wanted to blend in. I wanted to be like all my buddies. And I wanted if I wanted to earn the attention of a girl. I felt like I wanted to like kind of do something or be funny or smart or cool or good at soccer or something to impress her. Or and, maybe not have to wonder why there was interest, right? Because if, if it was, you're saying you don't want her to potentially be interested in you because you're a, a well-known kid. Right, exactly. And I, I felt like I, it, it was, you know, a shift overnight. Like yeah. suddenly I got attention from these girls that wouldn't, wouldn't look at me the day before. Right. And then, and suddenly I'm, they find me interesting. And that made me, it just felt, Disingenuine. I don't know. It was something about it that made me feel very uncomfortable. And I was, you know, I was 13. My my mind, my body, my spirit, everything was changing. And I had no idea what was happening to, to my body and, yeah. and who I was. I was very lost. And then to read about yourself in, in magazines or, you know, people on television talking about this is Alex and this is what he likes. And this these are the types of girls he's into. And it was just very uncomfortable. Yeah. And again, because I didn't set out to become an actor. It wasn't like a conscious decision. It was, again, I, it just happened. It was also very easy for me to s- just stop. And uh, that's what you just sort of resolved to yourself that I don't want to encourage this. So yeah. So, yeah. And again, back to it not being dramatic. I, it was a dinner table conversation with my parents. Mm-hmm. And I just like said, I don't like this isn't fun. I don't like this. I don't want to act anymore. And dad was like, great, well, then do something else. Do whatever you want. I just want you to be happy. If this isn't for you, then go do something else. And I'm today very grateful for that because I feel I've met some actor kids here in Hollywood that have parents that kind of, in a way, live vicariously through their kids. And they push them very hard. And it can be, you know, create a pressure for the kid and where they feel like I can't stop now because I have my whole family here. I'm, you know, I'm the breadwinner of the mm-hmm. family. And that's tough when you're that young. Yeah. Fortunately, I wasn't in that position. And my dad, even though I was at a place in my, I don't, I don't want to call it career, but like yeah. I was getting you know, offers from other Swedish yeah. projects. And I can see how some other parents would probably have been like, well, you know, this is a great opportunity. Yeah, how can you, you walk just, away like, from Don't this. walk yeah. away from this. Enjoy this. Like right. take this movie and do this show or whatever. Because right. when you had been doing something like, like The Dog That Smiled, the one that ultimately – caused you to walk away for a bit. How did that affect your day-to-day life? Did you drop out? Did you have to leave school to go and do that? Or would it be during summers or how did it work? No, we did it spring, summer. So in the spring, I would, we made it work. I didn't have to drop out or anything. We had a tutor on set. And then obviously over the summer, I could shoot as much as I, mm-hmm. as I wanted. I was able to keep up. 
So at 13, because of, the, because of what we've just discussed, you, you stop acting for a bit. You finish your, you know, I guess the equivalent of uh, high school back home. Yeah. And then from what I understand, the you're almost as a way of, of rebelling. I don't know if that's the appropriate word, but you say, I'm going to go into the Marines. Is that correct? Yeah. Like what, what motivated that? It wasn't going to be a career path ever, was it? No. No, I come from a family of pacifists and it was more a personal challenge, I guess, and maybe a way to rebel against my my, my family and my heritage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up in Sedamalm, South Stockholm, which is a very bohemian neighborhood. And my dad is, and, and all his friends, and even on my mother's side, her, my uncle is on my mother's side as an author, and my aunt on my mother's side is a painter. And, and we we had a composer living with us for 14 years. He, you won, who kind of became some brother slash father figure to me mm-hmm. he rented a room because mom and dad moved into this apartment in 1980 in south stockholm and at the time it was a very poor neighborhood so it was you could get a big apartment for not a lot of money but it was too big it was like a seven bedroom apartment it was just <laughs> i was the only kid right. so mom's friend yuan who's then like a 22 year old you know he wanted to become a composer right moved in and as the family grew joe one stayed so like <laughs> Mom and dad kept adding kids and dogs and rabbits and <laughs> birds, but Joan became an important part of the family. So he stayed there till I was fifteen or sixteen. Uh, That's so, like that sounds like a movie itself. Yeah. It. So Joan was always there, you know, and because he was a composer, he worked from he had his little bedroom and his piano, and he was like playing this classical music in there. And yeah, so we had like an extra dad when dad was at the theater. <laughs> It was amazing. So yeah. it was a very artistic household yeah. and a very big family. My cousins lived in the apartment above, and we would eat dinner together every night. And look, it was an amazing childhood. It really was. And incredible people, and there was a lot of love in, 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 in that house. But I guess when I was 19, and again, growing up in a very kind of concrete jungle, and dad was not sporty at all. We didn't go skiing in the winter like most Swedes do. <laughs> and, you know, he, he loved to cook and drink wine. That was his thing. So I guess I wanted to do something different, and I wanted to challenge myself. I didn't really know after graduating. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wasn't ready to specialize or focus on something specific. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, well, this is a good time to maybe try this and this. And there was this unit that I was uh, kind of intrigued by out in the archipelago, the the Marines out there. And it felt like something very different and something that I had I'd never done before, you know. And it was a it was a grueling thing, right? I mean, they don't they don't mess around there. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was reading it here. I mean, I think it's worth worth getting into partly because obviously we're going to come come in a moment to Generation Kill, and obviously there there are major differences. But this was you got a taste of of getting your ass kicked, right? Yeah, it was a great experience. I'm incredibly happy I did it. It was again unlike anything I've ever done before, and. But it was physically and and uh, mentally very challenging. Yeah, we were. It was a very uh, small independent unit. We were out in the archipelago in teams of four on the islands. Our job was to secure the islands from potential sabotage or terrorism against the, U- the Swedish Navy. Mm-hmm. So it was, I was a sergeant, a team leader, and I had three men with me. So we worked very independently out on the islands. When, it was an incredible experience. We obviously bonded and it became super tight. And when you spend that much time together and, you know, you're out in in, in, in the sticks, yeah. you know, in the middle of nowhere. And, and also when you're that kind of tired and hungry and, you know, it, you really get to know each other pretty well. I bet. So it, it, it was an extraordinary experience. It's obviously different joining the serving in Sweden as opposed to here in the States. When I went in, when I joined, I didn't, I mean, I knew that I wouldn't have to go out and be sent to Iraq or Afghanistan. Our last war was 200 years ago. <laughs> there are Swedish forces like I-4, you know, United Nations, but, but it's not like, I think it's a bigger decision here in the States going into it. And, you know, it's a bigger conversation with your family mm-hmm. because, you know, you're going to go into, you know, uh, you'll be sent, sent overseas yeah. eventually. And so for me, it was more a personal challenge. And when that year was over, which I think would have taken you up to 96, where again, it's the brink of, of a big year for your dad as well. And a lot's going on here, but you get to the, you get to the end of that year. And my sense from what I've read is that suddenly something had happened inside of you that you were now willing to revisit the idea of acting. Is that when it started or did that happen after, I know you then went off to 
England to to study. What was it that happened along that post military service period that made you reconsider the idea of of acting? I guess when I was in the military, I thought about it. I guess like most of us thought about like, all right, we're, we were twenty twenty one, and we were all like, all right, what's next? What do we do after this? You know? And I I didn't know. I really I can't say that it was a moment out there where I felt like, all right, may, I you know what, this is my calling. <laughs> and because I didn't know, I ended up moving to Leeds in, 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 in England with a friend to officially study, but we didn't really study. We just <laughs> like went to pubs every right. night and got right. drunk and had a great time. Yeah. And I just needed that after the regiment of, you know, that lifestyle being in the military. It was very strict and very tough. And I just needed to go out and have fun and be yeah. independent and do my thing. Yeah. And it was when I, it was from actually when I was at Leeds University, where that's where I felt, well, I don't know what I want to do, but maybe I should give it a go. Maybe I should try it. Because I thought back and I felt like, well, I did kind of enjoy it. And I do miss those free Cinnabons. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it's worth before. Like, my fear was I felt like I don't want to wake up when I'm 65 and then regret not having tried it as an adult. Mm-hmm. Like, like, oh, I, re- you know, retired when I was 13. And, right. And then. I didn't want to live with that. I'm like, right. oh, what about, what if, what if, what if? Um, so I applied to Marymount Theater School in New York from Leeds, from the university there. They just said, like, all right, put yourself on tape, two auditions, two scenes from two plays. And I went to the, the library of the school and just pulled two scenes that my friend <laughs> filmed me and we sent it over. And right. yeah, and I was lucky I got in. Which meant moving to the States for, for the first time, right? Yeah. That was a big thing. And I think actually... It sounds like the reason that you were only at Marymount for six months was that was it is. Ter- I was a terrible actor. Well, no, I did, I'm not saying that, but it sounds like you were, you you know, it, it is tough to be away from everything you've ever known or whatever you had going on before that, right? Yeah, it's a great school. And I did feel like when I got there and I start, I, I felt I, I had a great time. Again, it was the first time acting as an adult and I loved it, you know. The problem was three weeks before. So I I got in when I was in Leeds in the spring, and then I went home to Sweden for the summer, and then in the fall I was going to move to New York, and I was going to you know spend four years there. I met a girl <laughs> in Stockholm that summer, like three weeks before I was supposed to go to New York, and I fell madly in love with her and moved to New York, and I was heartbroken. It was, you know, I couldn't afford to fly back to Stockholm. She couldn't afford come out to New York. So we didn't see each other for six months. This was pre-FaceTime and Skype and all that. So like I was, it was just, you know, I couldn't, the phone calls were incredibly expensive. So we would talk once a week, but it it was very difficult to kind of, to keep it going. And she ended up, it was her decision. She basically said like, Alex, I don't think this is going to work. You're in New York, going to be there for four years. Like I, you know, it's, I'm just sad. We don't, I don't see you. And like, maybe I'll see you over Christmas for a week, but like, like, you know, she had a good point, but it was tough. And New York can, I love New York. I live in New York, mm-hmm. but it's also a very tough city. If you're heartbroken and broke mm-hmm. in New York, it's, um, you feel very lonely. I, you know, again, like my family, my, the girl I was in love with was back in Stockholm and I didn't really know anyone. Mm-hmm. My classmates were great, but still, it was just like, I didn't have that. Like it was, it was tough being away. And I made the mistake of renting a room or it's not a room. It was a closet <laughs> on Times Square. Okay. I'd been to New York, but when I was eight, this was like the first time yeah. since I was eight. Right. And I found an apartment in the Village Voice on Times Square or a small, again, a closet yes, in, yes. In, a, in a very flamboyant Filipino designer's <laughs> apartment. And it was on Times Square. And I right. looked at a map and I was like, this is fantastic because it's like smack in the middle of Manhattan. Right. Like, it's great. That's where right. you want to be, of right. course. And then I get there and I'm like, oh, Okay, you probably don't want to live on Forty Fourth and Broadway. <laughs> You're a little loud, a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. it's intense, and yeah. you know, it's not a. It doesn't have much of a neighborhood vibe. <laughs> so I think all those components made it tough. You know, you're in this crazy location in this wild city. You don't have any money. You're heartbroken. Your family's gone. And I decided after a semester to move back to Sweden. I felt like this. I got to move back. I got to make this work with this girl. And, and so you're going to go back for the girl, but also now try to rekindle the, the acting career in Sweden. I didn't really have a plan. I was just very focused on this girl. 
<laughs> and, that, and I felt like we have to reunite. You know, we're meant to be together, and this is a mistake. I think she ended up going back to her like ex boyfriend, <laughs> and I felt like no, this no, no we're meant to be together. Yeah. So I dropped out and moved home, and we got back together, and it was amazing for two weeks. Right. <laughs> and then we broke up. Right. And now you say, what do I do with myself? Yeah, because right? I was like, we need to know each other. Right. In hindsight, like, what was I thinking? Just like, we met, weeks. we spent three weeks together. I was 20, 21, she was 18. And being gone for six months, I kind of created this image, this idea of us together and who mm-hmm. this girl was. And and then you get back and you, you're in reality and you're like, oh, like, well, it was not quite that. Right. We, we broke up and, but then I dropped out and was in Stockholm. I didn't know what to do, so I... Started working at a coffee shop in South Stockholm as a busboy at my uncle's restaurant mm-hmm. in Stockholm. It seems like, so this is, I guess at this point we're talking 97 roughly, because you had gone, or maybe... 98, 98, 98. 99, yeah. So a few years, you're back there, you're, you're, it seems like you did start doing a bit of, of like, whether it would be soap operas or things back in Sweden, right? You got back in the game a little bit. It took a while. Yeah. yeah. And then, though, the big thing, which is crazy in and of itself, is as far as ending up back here or the the beginning of ending up back here, you just go to visit your dad. You just come to the States. Your dad's doing a movie. It's now 2000, roughly 2000, yeah. 2001. And so what happens? You go, you just take us through. You, you fly to come see your dad. Yeah, so I was a busboy and a barista for about a year, year and a half, and I was trying to find a job as an actor in Stockholm. And I hadn't done much, a small role in a movie. I was on a soap opera. I did a, two plays. But again, it took a, a good year till I got my the first job, which was a movie called Happy End. Mm-hmm. But I, So I was working as an actor and part-time barista. And my dad was here in L.A. shooting a movie called The Glass House. So I believe it was like 2000. Yeah. And I came out because, again, he, Dad will – he always rents a house and brings the, the family and all friends. You know, he is a very social guy, and mm-hmm. he loves to have everyone around. And So he had a house out here, and I flew out to, to hang out. So I was here on vacation, and his manager asked me, uh, knowing that I dabbled in acting in Sweden, yeah. if I wanted to go to this audition. And I thought – well, that'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be a cool story to tell the boys back home. Right. Like, I was in Hollywood, and I went to an audition, and, right. and it was for this movie called Zoolander. Yes. Specifically, just to refresh people's memory, because you you did get the part. You were one of the uh, assorted moron models that were uh, surrounding this moron model, Derek Zoolander. I was, played. Mi- I was Mikas. Mikas, yes. Very much. <laughs> yeah. What was the, uh, they had one thing that they kept. Earth to Mikas. Earth to Mikas. Earth yes. to Brent. <laughs> Yeah. This was your uh, your grand debut in in Hollywood. Yeah, but I mean, or anywhere. Again, I wasn't. Work- I mean, I did a s- couple of small local plays in a small Swedish indie, but right. this was yeah. I hadn't. But I mean, really it's done- actually crazy because so you go to this audition and and I mean, people don't just you don't it, it doesn't happen where it's like, hey, do you want to go to audition? Yeah, okay, now you're in a Ben Stiller. Movie. It's just crazy that which that- I subsequently would find out. Yes, <laughs> but it took a while because right. I was again it was. The the first and only that trip the only audition and I read for it and then I went back in and Ben Stiller was in the room and we read the scene a couple of times and then a week later I was on this plane on my way to New York City I was flying business class which was <laughs> incredible and they came with a nice black car and picked me up at the airport with the sign with my name on it it was just crazy <laughs> welcome to New York make us yeah it was extraordinary. <laughs> It was obviously an incredible experience, and we you know we, we shot for. I mean, I'm in two or three scenes in the film, but we spent maybe two weeks in Manhattan shooting and loved it. And then I flew back, and so after that, my dad's manager and agent took me on and basically said, like, we'll represent you out here. But I went back to Sweden and got a job at a theater in Stockholm, mm-hmm. and was doing that for eight months, and then another job at a theater in Gothenburg. And they basically said, well, whenever you're done with these plays, you should come back out and, you, should, you know, we'll send you out to some more auditions because you seem to be pretty good at it. Yeah. And that's how I felt. So I told my friends, I was like, 
because they, they kept asking, what, what's it like out there? And I was like, it's a piece of cake. Like, you just <laughs> walk into this room, right. and Ben Stiller is waiting, and then you have a coffee with him, and then you play around with the scene a couple of times. So you are the reason why, at that time, there were not, aside from your dad, too many Swedes working here. Now we've got Vikander, Joel Kinnaman, Numi Rapaz. It was because they heard from you. All you have to do is show up. I and- told everyone back home, <laughs> guys, come on out. Come right. on out. <laughs> it's the gold rush. Right. So then I think two or three years later when I was done, when I had, I took a couple of months off and I felt like, I, well, let's go out now and we'll get some more work. And I came back out here and I, and I was, I hit, you know, reality hit me hard in the face because <laughs> I realized that I wasn't very good at auditioning right. and it was incredibly tough to find a job out here and how it was like, you know, how lucky I was to get Zoolander and that, because <laughs> it took me almost three years to get my next job out here. Right. So there were there were other jobs in between these between Zoolander and what I'm about to ask you about, but the major year for you it seems would have been 2008 or at least what led into 2008 because here back to back it seems like you got the parts in Generation Kill, which is this HBO miniseries, and then also True Blood. So if we can break this down a little bit, Generation Kill is seven part. HBO miniseries created by David Simon and Ed Burns. This was going to look at U.S. Marines during the early days of the war in Iraq, generally, but specifically this this guy who was nicknamed, this is Brad Col- Colbert, nicknamed Iceman because he could stay cool under fire. So, you know, real, real guy that you're, so you hear about this and how do you end up in the lead of an HBO miniseries as, as your first I think this is your first lead in in America, right? First leading role in. Yeah, it was uh, through a lot of bribes and threats. <laughs> but like that's as you look back, that was the the big break in a way. Yeah, yeah, it was without a doubt. I mean, yeah. I hadn't really worked in three yeah. years. Yeah, I would go back and forth. So I, I'd come out here, I'd audition for three months, you know, rent a, a bedroom somewhere, and and then when I was out of money, I went back to Sweden and would do a small film or. a a play or, or something mm-hmm. to save up a little bit of money. Then go. So I would go back and forth like that till, till 07, spring of 07 was when I got Generation Kill. And the spring of 07 was, I'd been out here on and off for almost three years. And I, I don't know, I started feeling like, why am I out here? Because the stuff that was sent my way wasn't very interesting. What kind of stuff were you typically getting? It was a, it was a lot of, you know, the jock, the boyfriend right. who gets killed in the second scene <laughs> in a horror movie or or, you know, that kind of, like, it was just right. not very interesting or substantial. Right. right, And if there ever was something that I was excited about, and I would audition for it, and maybe you're lucky enough to get a call back, and you get super excited, and then, sure enough, like, when you think you're going to get it, they're like, you know, a, a more established actor will come in and just like, thank you, I'll take that. Ugh. Because, of course, you know, if it's yeah. a good part, right. more people are going to be, you right, know, right, they'll, right. they'll be chasing it. So I, it was this moment where I was like, why, like, why didn't I just stay in Sweden? Like, I was I didn't have a great career in Sweden, but at least I got to work and uh-huh. I got to work with occasionally interesting people. The reason I came out here was there's not a lot going on in Sweden, so yeah. you would have to like do an interesting project, and then you couldn't take time off because you didn't make enough money. So you would have to then accept or jump on board projects that you're not excited about, which is always a horrible right. feeling if you feel right. like I don't want to do this, right. but I have to pay my rents. I'll do right. it. But then then I was like. Yeah, I had that kind of uh, low point in the beginning of 07 where I was like, "What? Well, wh- why am I out here? And like, is this any better? Mm-hmm. At least in Sweden, I get to work and mm-hmm. occasionally on something interesting. Here, I'm. And you could be a big fish in a small pond rather than here. It must have well, fallen. yeah, I wasn't even a fish out here. I was like <laughs> a fish finger. And you know, it was. And, and and again, it was just like I didn't. Again, when I, every single time I got excited about something, even if it was like a small little thing, I, I you know. I would end up losing the part yeah. to usually someone who had a name was a bit more established. And then this Generation Kill showed up and I was, I read the book and I was, I just I thought it was an extraordinary story and also a fascinating character. Brad Colbert is, I was just like mm. so fascinated by him. Yeah. And I started auditioning for it and that process was horrible because <laughs> I auditioned out here, then in New York. And then they said, well, Susanna White, the director's in London. She wants you to fly out and audition for it is between you and another guy now right and the good thing was they said like we don't want famous actors right because we want this to feel like the, you know documentary style and we want unknown faces like like 
which is great. And I was right. like, finally, you know, <laughs> it's an amazing part. Right, and, right, right. you know, some big name actor's not going to come right, in and take right. it. And I was in London. And it was like between you and another guy. And I auditioned for it, went back to New York and was just walking around waiting for that call to be like, you can either go back to Sweden and or Namibia. So it was like a seven. do or die moment. You decided like if it doesn't happen. I was on my, yeah, I was, I'd already, I'd sold my car in L.A., I was kind of ready to go back to Sweden. So I had a ticket to Sweden. Like, I was going to fly back two days later. And so I came back to New York because Alexa Fogel, the casting director, was in New York. So I was out there just, like, slept on a friend's couch, just waiting for, like, this, all right, what's the next, you know, what's going to happen? And then they call me, and they're like, oh, they want you to go down to Baltimore now where Ed Burns and David Simon were shooting The Wire at the time because they want you to read for them. So I took the train down, auditioned for them, Went back to New York, and those days were horrible because, like, every time my phone rang, I was like, <gasps> my heart stopped because I was like, right. is this the call right. that's going to determine the future of my life? Right, right. And then they, they called, and they said, you have to audition again, and it's now between you and two other guys. Where did this other guy come exactly. from? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, here we go again. Right, right, All right, right. Now some, you know, some established dude came right. in, and uh, I'm not going to get it. Right. And we had to go in again. It was the fourth or fifth time in New York. Did it again. Another two, three days of waiting. And then, yeah, then Alexa called. And she said, uh, you owe me a very nice lunch because you're going to Namibia. <laughs> so obviously I'm sure that that felt pretty great. But it also must have gone down pretty quickly because it sounds like you were off immediately. You go, this was a seven-month thing. You're now carrying a – I mean, from being a guy who was hoping to find a job basically doing anything, you're now carrying – an HBO miniseries that's going to be shooting all over the world. And also the responsibility of playing a guy who, you know, it's, it's not like a nobody here. No. This, and, and I, I actually pulled up some video of him today to see the, just check out what the actual guy was like. I think you guys actually resemble each other. There's a, there's definitely a result that I saw, but my question is here, you chose to not connect with him before portraying him. I mean, you just felt, the book, you know, rely on the text rather than try to... I didn't really have a, an option. He was with the SAS in Afghanistan. And again, I had three, day, three days to get ready, basically. So there's not going to be They called me. Or... I was in New York, and when I got the call, I, don't even, I think it was on a Wednesday, and they're like, on a Friday, you're flying to Namibia, and you might want to call your mom because you're not going to come home. You're not going to see her till Christmas. Oh, my God. This was in May. So literally within 48 hours, I was on a plane with seven scripts in my lap and just like then we had about three weeks in Namibia of boot camp and time to kind of get to know these characters and again I couldn't get hold of of Brad because he was in Afghanistan but we had Eric Cucker and Rudy Reyes Rudy also plays himself on the show and Eric was the military advisor on the show who both served in first recon they both knew Brad incredibly Mm -hmm. well and obviously Evan, who wrote Evan Wright, the the journalist who uh, wrote the the articles for yeah. Rolling Stone magazine, who then became and then the novel, was in the Humvee behind Brad for six weeks when they plowed through the country, basically. So he, you know, and he was out there with us. So I had that those guys to talk to and get to know a bit more about about who Brad was, and and Evan even had a little tape recorder because again he was called Iceman. They all called him Iceman. And I obviously understood why, but I was like, well, you know, and everyone's like, I got a great example for you. Listen to this. And then he played me a recording from a firefight when they're in the Humvee and Ray, the driver, and Tromley in the back seat. The adrenaline is pumping, obviously. They're, like You can hear the bullets ricochet off the Humvee. And in a situation like that, your pitch will go up a bit. You know, everyone, you know, Ray's yeah. like, I want to get turned in. I can't turn. Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, <laughs> right. And then you hear Brad and he's like, Ray? Ray, stop. No, no, back up, Ray. I need to make a three-point turn here. And you hear ding, ding, as he's firing, oh and they're being shot. He's like, Ray, no, 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 go back, go back. Like, talking to his kids, <laughs> and it's like, very calm demeanor. It's like, Trombley, are you watching your sector? Trombley, good. You know? <laughs> it sounds more condescending when I do it now. No, it was, no, no. Like, I mean, it's amazing it was, that you can... you got you In that second, I was like, right. all right, this is the ice, man. Like, yeah. Seven months later, you've done this in the can. It it ends up massively acclaimed, 11 Emmy nominations. The whole experience, though, 
sounds like it was probably transformative in a lot of ways and maybe gave you a bit more, I would think, confidence going forward and leverage and everything. going. I mean, it just seems like you would probably come out of that a different actor than you went into it, right? Yeah, it was a transformative experience in many ways. We were, I mean, it was unlike any other job of, you know, before or since. We spent seven months in the Kalahari Desert together, and we lived together. We did everything together. Yeah. So that bonding experience was extraordinary. And and again, I was terrified because I felt the you know the responsibility of playing this guy who, and it's personal. Like if you watch the show, yeah, the stuff they're talking about is real. Mm-hmm. They actually said this. You know when he talks about prostitutes in Australia or like <laughs> being in love with his, his ex-girlfriend who then married his best friend and now that he he now goes over to their house and has dinner with them and he watches like the love is and it's just like this heartbreaking stories that he told like he obviously knew that he had a journalist in the Humvee but I think you forget that after a couple yeah. days especially if you're in a war zone yeah. you kind of you stop censoring yourself and you're tired you're out there and you just like you, you sit and you bullshit in the in the car mm-hmm. with the other guys and and now, like this was, I was going to read these lines, and right. it was going to be on HBO for the world to to see, and right. and also like morally, who is this guy? Like, how do I portray him? Right. What's Brad going to say when when he watches this? I felt a, of course, I felt a responsibility because I was again like it was a big role in a big show, and right. for someone who hadn't done anything, right. it was massive, but even even more so, I felt the responsibility uh, towards Brad and like to, to get it right. When you came back from that, how? Soon after, how quickly? Basically, how did how does True Blood enter the picture now? Which is again at HBO. Was there a was there a thing where HBO said we got to keep this guy around? No, I think it's obviously easy to assume that because I did Generation Kill in '07 and then started True Blood in '08. Yeah, but I actually met Alan Ball in January, February of '07, four months before Generation Kill. Again, one of those general meetings here in Hollywood. Then. You know, no one ever called me back, and yeah. I figured, like, well, that's just one of those where, like, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And then when we were in Maputo towards the end of the shoot, Alan called me uh, or called my agent and said, well, I met with Alex 10 months ago, and this project, True Blood, we're actually, like, we're doing it now, or, and I'd love to talk to him again if possible. And they were scheduled to go to start in the fall of 07, They'd already shot the pilot, True Blood. I'm not in the pilot. I, my character shows up in the fourth episode. And that was meant to shoot in November of 07. And I couldn't do it because we were shooting till Christmas out in Africa. So it looked like I would have to not pass because I obviously had to audition right, all that. But right, I couldn't, right. like, I couldn't, we couldn't chase that project. Right. And so it was going to go away. And then the writer's strike happened. And because we were already, we already had a script for Generation Kill, we could, it, wouldn't, it didn't affect us. We could keep shooting. But True Blood, because they were in the state, you know, they were and they were writing the episodes. They had to push, and that it's actually because of the writer strike. I ended up. You are the guy that benefited Eric. from the writer strike. I would not <laughs> had it not been for the writer strike. Right. I would not have played Eric Northman. That's so crazy. And actually, Eric Northman wasn't originally what you were going in for, right? Well, you would have to ask Alan. In your Re- view, did you have any sense? So, just to for, for people that are still catching up with the show or whatever. Bill Compton is the other, it's the Slev Triangle, essentially, and he's the other character. Stephen Moyer ended up playing him. Did you think you were going in for that? Well, so when I met Alan, they were casting the pilot. And again, Eric Northman doesn't show up till episode four. Right, right. Having read the books, I'm pretty sure when Alan met me, he right. knew that I wasn't right for Bill Compton, that I was, you know, Eric Northman is a Viking, you know, like, I think I look more like <laughs> right. Eric Northman than uh, right. Bill Compton is right. like this Southern gentleman and who's meant to be you know, dark and right. Eric is, right. you know, has this long blonde hair. Right. I don't know if I, I remember if I read for Bill or if he talked about the character or what, but Eric Northman, did, that name did not come up. That character did not come up in the first meeting. But then when they reached out when I was in Namibia or in Maputa in Mozambique mm-hmm. 10 months later, they said, there's this other part that we think you might be right for. And it ended up being seven years of your life and the biggest hit for HBO since The Sopranos. And I guess just, I know it's probably unfair to ask in, in one question, like, what well, you know, to synopsize that big of an experience. But I mean, essentially, if Generation Kill put you on the map in a way, this this really 
took it to a different level, right? This was in terms of audience members, viewers, yeah. got to got to know you in a way that nobody ever had before. Yeah, right? no, I owe it all to True Blood. Generation Kill was very critically acclaimed, but it didn't hit the zeitgeist the way True Blood did. It was a miniseries, and it, it not that it was esoteric, but it just it, it wasn't as big and accessible as True Blood was. Yeah. It definitely changed my life. And I love the way you've, you've talked about, I think you do it with Big Little Lies as well, that sort of animal references to the way that you, you've approached these characters. In this case, I think you were saying that it was, it was almost like a male lion just observing and not, you're not clear if they're ready to pounce or whatever as, as Eric. And then with Big Little Lies, you're the, ultimately the, the way it resolves itself, you're the one that's getting pounced. But I mean, yeah. it was just uh, interesting to look at that. I try but. to, yeah, I try to use that analogy without when, uh, well, spoiler alert, I yeah. guess, if you yeah, haven't yeah. seen yeah. Big Little Lies. But at <laughs> the don't end, be listening when, if, you haven't, if you haven't seen it. Uh, yeah. When all the ladies pounce on, yes. on yeah. Terry and they, and he tries to kind of, you know, that shake them off and right. push them and, you know, they're biting, like Reese is literally on my back. Right. <laughs> I, it reminded me of like on a nature show where you see a lion being attacked by hyenas. And I try to use that analogy without calling, you know, Nicole and Reese and Laura hyenas. Right. <laughs> and, and myself, a beautiful male lion. Right, right, right. Well, there's already, women already hate yeah. you enough after this show. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm arrogant, but not that quite that arrogant. But there was something about, the, you know, the end of, of Big Little Lies where it, it gets very, it's very visceral, it's very primal, it's right. very intense. And really did feel like he's obviously a predator this guy and, yeah. and he's being attacked by these vicious you know women yeah. they're from every angle and like he could take one or two down but when you know together they kind of that's it they end him so we're basically at big little eyes here but i just want to note for anybody who's listening and wants to do you know extra credit i guess that in the years during true blood you were obviously doing other things as well and and in the years since true blood before Big Little Lies, and just everything from, I was reminded, Paparazzi with Lady Gaga, you're in the music video, that'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll, if, if you did nothing else, that would that would be a, a cool thing. Yeah. Melancholia, you now go and work with Lars von Trier, who made the aforementioned Breaking the Waves, that must have been cool to kind of, uh, you know, do that, and, and, a, and a major movie. We were talking before we went on, on the air here about Disconnect, which I think is a great movie that didn't get a wide enough audience in, but really shows you doing, you know, a, a different sort of part and really interesting stuff than, than unfortunately, you know, it didn't get great distribution, but excellent movie that opened Santa Barbara Film Festival in 2012. And, and at the same time, also occasionally these, these very big movies, whether it was Battleship or, or one that I know took a lot of work on your part, Legend of Tarzan, where Maybe there's a way to weave in here at some point just how, you know, what sort of an experience you gravitate towards more yourself. Because when you're doing a, a huge thing like Battleship or, or Tarzan, you know, it's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of pressure in a different way than, but also I'm sure a, a, a little movie like Disconnect, you, there's no messing around because, because there's the absence of that. So all of that's interesting, but I know in the interest of time, we better get to Big Little Lies, which, which maybe is like the if if there was generation kill then there's true blood now big little lies might be like just another of these milestones i would think for you how did you first hear about it and and what appealed to you about it i was sent the script um fall of must have been a year and a half ago now and i just uh i hadn't read that wasn't familiar with the book but starting reading the scripts and uh nicole was already attached so I was already intrigued, obviously, because I mean, she's an extraordinary yeah. actress. And my father has worked with her. And, and Lars on and, Dogville. And Lars on Dogville. And both Lars and Dad spoke very highly of her. And I was a fan of Jean-Marc Vallée's. I thought his movies were excellent. So all those components made me excited. You know, when I got the script, it was already like a great director, and amazing actress. And, and then as I started reading it, I was just, it didn't take me long to say yes to that. It's because it's a, an incredible story. And a very interesting, complicated relationship between these two characters, and when you when you're presented with an opportunity to explore that with with Nicole Kidman, you don't say no. Did any part of you though have any reservation, knowing how essentially this guy is 
I don't want to be reductive, but he is like the villain in a sense of the piece, right? Yeah. I, I, not to say there's nothing sympathetic. He's you make it a very multi-dimensional character, and and obviously there's there's everybody has extenuating circumstances and things that make them the way they are. But the idea that it would be such a violent guy doing things that are not especially appealing to to people. I mean, I guess you've played other characters that are not the most endearing on paper either like the diary of a teenage girl is a guy that's with a underage girl rod larry is a friend i know you did you did straw dogs not another another not especially lovely guy so it doesn't seem to deter you that kind of thing. no it doesn't and but this was very dark i would say monroe that i play in diary teenage girl is more like a lost kid yeah you know the perry is uh there's a darkness there i mean it's very deep and it's uh He's very troubled, and it's that inner friction. He he he's uh, struggling, and and that's what makes it interesting to me. The fact that he's not—it's not a stereotypical like right. abusive husband, a wife beater. It's uh, he's troubled. He's you know, it's obviously not about condoning what he does, but you want to feel his pain and his struggle, and 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 that friction. Yeah. Again, I was—I thought it was a fascinating character. And when you read a script and you're fascinated by the character, you you should just do that movie. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter, you know. Like I, I just came off Tarzan. It was yeah. nine months of playing a very like iconic hero. It was like you know a super good guy. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> I was I was quite ready to kind of explore the darkness a bit. So how does how does one prep to play this kind of a character independently, and then also with? Nicole, I know there are elements of both, but what what did that involve? I don't. It was just we spent a lot of time together, Nicole and I. We didn't rehearse at all, really. Is that as a Jean Marc Vallée decision? He just no, said, it was. We didn't yeah. want to. Like we just felt like it. We, especially those uh, the physical stuff is it, it. We wanted to kind of find that and explore that on today. It was more about getting to know each other better and understanding the the relationship and their past a little bit. And it was also very important to spend time with the boys, our twins. Yeah. And it was important that that they are attached to Perry, that they, you know, like there's this, like, he's a great dad and yeah. they love him. And when Celeste is watching her husband with the kids, like, it's, you want her to feel like, well, look at him. He's great. Right. Like, how could I leave him? He's right. amazing. So we wanted to spend time with the boys so they would be incredibly comfortable around us and just be relaxed and natural. And also the way Jean-Marc shoots is very... As you see in the show, it's very, you know, it's a lot of handheld camera, yeah. existing lights, no, you know, tape marks. It's not conventional filmmaking in any sense of the word. So it was it was more about spending time together, really. And yeah. then on my own, just trying to figure out in my head who this guy was, what his struggle was, and what he's gone through, and, and kind of dissecting that. When you and Nicole, well, let's just say, for your scenes, period, were you generally, if somebody does a movie, even I think most TV projects, it's not going to be in any kind of order that makes sense, just the interest of economics. But in this case, was there, because of the intensity of the sexual relationship, the violence, all of this, were they able to accommodate that at all so that you could do it in some order that made sense for the actors? A little bit. We would have to jump back and forth a, a bit because we shot, the houses were up in, in Monterey. So all the exterior stuff around the houses are living room our kitchen our patio that that was up in monterey but our bedroom was here in in culver city mm-hmm. on a sound stage so we would block shoot it a little bit which was great we got to start with the first episode and that was the most it was important to kind of set up that you know to when i grab her at the end of the first episode that's the first time i grab her you know and and that that was the first scene we shot where it got almost physical or on the you know and I thought it was so interesting the way it's obviously very important how we pace that and how we because uh, I love that when you when you watch something in, in, in this case where you present it with this like idyllic family and this amazing, you know, uh, house and great kids and he has you know tons of money and they're, you know, they've been together for a decade, but it's still like super passionate. Right. So, you know, you watch it and you go like, oh, my God, that's like the dream life. Yeah. And then at the end of the first episode, when when Perry grabs her, it's. I like that it doesn't get violent. It's not like he slaps her or anything. It's just like that one thing of you can... The crack in the ice. Yeah, a little bit. It's like, wait, what was that? And then, oh, that that was kind of odd. 
And I love how subtle it was yeah. that we didn't go straight into the, the violence right. that he kind of, and it was also, like you said, it was good to shoot it in somewhat chronological order. So if there's an actor listening who wants to know, you know, logistically, how do you even do this? This looks, this looks very convincing, the, the, the violence that you guys had to do to each other. And, and, and I just wonder if you could break it down. Like it's not, they're not, it's clearly not stunt people or anything there. You're not padded or anything. So how do you do this? Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> it really was. And Nicole is uh, obviously a very, she's very invested and, and she, you know, she doesn't hold back. She goes a hundred percent every time. And it was scary because we, again, the way we shot that it's, some of those sequences are quite long and very violent, and I have to slap her and throw her around the room. And it was, it was those days were very tough. Last three things, if if I can, just one of them is you've I know inhabited other dark characters before. We've kind of referenced that, but also even I read on the stage you did Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, which might be more in some ways similar to just the different type of abuse. But these people are beating each other up every night when you're doing something What's wrong with me because <laughs> i did that. and then i went off and did a blood wedding lorica right. which is also super dark and i and i just wrapped the film called hold the dark jeremy saunier it just well but often i guess it's people that aren't you gravitate towards what's not in your own experience it's so that's cath- a good thing. i guess it's cathartic yeah. in a way yeah. <laughs> but you know when you're over a long period of time what like six months of a of a play or in this case, I guess two or three months of a shoot, when you're having to inhabit this mind space, are you able to just turn, all right, like, you know, end of the day, you go home, you can have a beer, you get on with your life, or does it kind of linger? No, it, it lingers a bit. It naturally does because you're st- it's kind of percolating and you're thinking about stuff and, you know, you're, because you're still in it while you're, you know, it, it but it was, and it was, it was when I did uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in Stockholm. It was a long, long run. We did, uh, I think, 140 performances. So it was uh, six months, six days a week for six months. And, and you just had to, in order to function as a human being, like I, you know, my girlfriend at the time, we, when I came home at, from the theater, like, and we're talking six days a week. Yeah. Like it's, you can't come home. Like you, it was important to, to be able to kind of, leave that darkness and anxiety and, and at the theater so yeah. that go and then go out and just, you know, smile, have a yeah. good time, yeah. be with people you love and yeah. go for a great meal and a drink and like laugh. And uh, otherwise it, I wouldn't be able to do that for, I mean, for six months, it's, it's important yeah. to, to be able to, and, and it was tough in the beginning because again, this, that was the first time where I had to like figure out, I had to kind of switch off in a way. And, and leave a character behind. And again, you you never do that 100%. There's still obviously going to be things, even if you are out and you're having a good time, you'll think about stuff yeah. and stuff will linger, but it it's important to at least try to kind of break away from that. And I don't live here in LA, and, and we shot some of the most violent scenes from Big Little Lies mm-hmm. here in Culver City. And I'm very happy that I one of my best friends from Sweden lives out here with his family, and I... I lived in their garage when the kids were born. So like I, they're, they're 10 and eight now, but you know, I'm, I'm like their uncle yeah. and their family to me. And it's, it was a lifesaver to have that when we shot those scenes to, to not come home to an empty hotel room right. after 10, 12 hours of that violence and that intensity, but to come home to like a loving home with a great family where, you know, and, and, and to feel that it was that, that saved me. That's great. So the show obviously goes out and, clicked in a really rare way. I mean, limited series have rarely gone over as, as well critically or ratings or all of the things with, as, as this one did. And I just wonder how you would diagnose why that why that is. Because we all know, we all knew before Big Little Lies that domestic abuse is a problem that exists. But this really seemed to shake people in a way that nothing else that's really dealt with this subject has, at least in, in my memory. And so I just wonder... Why do you think that is? What's the takeaway for for people that is having this kind of uh, resonance? Well, I think that it's a very well-written script by David Kelly. John Mark is a fantastic director. And I think that the narrative is interesting. I think the way they – because some of the – by cutting back and forth between the aftermath and, and the, the actual story, 
leading up to to the the trivia night even these like mundane trivial arguments will have a you know potentially a significance which makes it quite interesting because you cut from an interrogation room where people are talking about like a murder something happened right. and then talk commenting about like oh well she was you know she was like she snapped and right. we always knew it but and then you cut back to like a kitchen sink argument between a husband and a wife that could mean nothing it could just be like this like like most people would have every other day right. or is that like is this the seed is right. this what's going to lead to to the to the murder right. and i think that structurally is very interesting and very yes. smart yes well all right so as a last question i guess you know what do you what do you make of this particular moment where you know there's been this tremendous response to your work i know you're coming off of i, I you'll have to remind me how many straight months of work on different movies and and just a kind of a crazy period in your life what do you make of this moment and and what's what's still on the to-do list for you overall you know we've been looking at a whole career here and and what's i think i'm done <laughs> you know you can pack it in now after this conversation back to back like, to barista yeah <laughs> I, had, I had a pretty good run there right. <laughs> no but in all seriousness it's a pretty you know if some it's a it's one of these turning points that we've been talking about if somebody were to if you were to stumble upon this in 10 15 years for whatever reason how would you how would you describe what what your outlook is at this moment those turning points i like when i'm when it's always in hindsight you look back and like oh that was a pivotal moment or whatever like i don't really think about it that way when i'm in it right. uh, i don't know if this is a pivotal moment in my career it's just it's always the same isn't it you're kind of like just always looking for the next one and you're trying to find something you're excited about and that could be 200 million dollar Tarzan movie right. or it could be a you know a 1 million dollar Diver Teenage Girl movie. Mm-hmm. It's all about those components, you know, who's the filmmaker? Who, who are you excited about the script? Like do you connect with a character and so I don't really know what's next, but that's also part of the excitement, isn't it? Like I love that the uncertainty of it. The fact that like 10 years ago, one day you're walking around the streets of Manhattan and then 36 hours later, you're on a plane on your way to Namibia to start this <laughs> incredible adventure. Right. I don't really know. There might be another one 36 hours from now. Right, right. Or not. <laughs> but I do make a damn good macchiato. So I can always go back to Stockholm and go back to being and a And you barista. probably, you don't mind the, the girls anymore expressing interest as you did once. It's okay now. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It. I really enjoyed it. 